0: Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing?
1: Very, very ready for Friday. Trying to just get set up for this intro was a complete clusterfuck. Oh my god. Yeah, I
0: I stopped and went and poured myself a shot of of bourbon, which I am now in the middle of because it was so bad. But now we're through it. (laughs) You think after 89, 90 episodes, we'd be able to start off a podcast smoothly, but no, it's actually gotten worse.
1: No, it's like, you ready? Oh wait, no, my thing just broke. All right, you ready? (laughs) Oh no, my thing just broke. But hey, we're on the road. We're going now. So before we get
0: into our content, we need to take a moment to shout out to our sponsors, starting with Haven app. If you guys have not yet downloaded Haven app, you guys should absolutely do it. It is a peer to peer marketplace for goods, kind of like Craigslist, kind of like eBay, kind of like Amazon. Um, But you don't have to sign up with an email or password because it runs on crypto. And so it just gives you a wallet to fund your account and then you can buy stuff in crypto. Uh, on the app. So a bunch of cool stuff on there. I got myself a drone. I play with it every now and then. Pretty good. Pretty good stuff. Very happy with it.
1: Yeah, make sure to check out haven.app backslash POV crypto. And when you sign up using that link, it has instructions on how you can claim $5 of the crypto of your choice. Of course, you should take the Bitcoin, but you have some other options as well. Haven's been with us for a long time. We're super appreciative that they've been supporting this podcast and hope we can continue working with them. On to the next sponsor. We've been working with eToro. eToro is the leading social trading platform. eToro started in 2007. In 2014, they added crypto support, and now in 2019, they're here in the United States. Uh, They have a bunch of really cool trading tools and uh, investing options on the platform. Essentially, they have everything that you could want um, as a crypto investor. Personally, for me, um, it's all about Bitcoin, and they have that covered, but if you're into other things, uh, they have it all, including diversified portfolios, including following your favorite traders and their strategies, uh, really it's every single trading strategy all in one app at the, uh, you know, with just the, a click of your mouse, you, you have access to all of it. Uh, so check out eToro. Right now, they gave us this whack link, b.tc backslash eToro POV. That's b.tc backslash eToro POV. Hopefully, we get an eToro link soon. But until then, make sure to use our link so we get credit for sending you over to eToro. Uh, you guys, this podcast with Eric Mertendale was really, really awesome. Um, Eric is a Bitcoin OG. He's a developer. He worked at BitPay before they went bad in the early days, just hardcore Bitcoin evangelist. Uh, He then went on to work at Blockstream, did a ton of different stuff, but mostly coordinated with devs and really tried to enable development on Bitcoin. And now he is building out his own kind of contract layer that leverages Bitcoin and other um, networks in order to, uh, you know, facilitate dark pools and trustless trading of cryptocurrencies, but especially Bitcoin. Um, this is a really great interview. David, what do you think about it?
0: Yeah, uh, a lot of the, the Bitcoin infrastructure I didn't totally understand simply because I'm just not as involved as you are. But we also talk about um, kind of just comparisons between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I really, I really enjoyed the part where we talked about um, the genesis stories of each and how each one maps on uh, to the, the, the specific blockchain very well. And then we also kind of talk about you know, Bitcoin's thermodynamic uh, energy wall, any e- energy protection wall. And then I, I, make the case that Ethereum has this a comparable energy wall in proof of stake of, in, in its proof of stake form because energy is tokenized, uh, money is tokenized energy. Uh, so that was an interesting uh, conversation. Uh, and then he talks about, uh, we talked about how uh, I think it's too late to stop Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin has already kind of escaped, uh, hit escape velocity. Uh, and then Bit- Ethereum's too far under the radar uh, for nation states to be viewed as a threat. So kind of generally talking about um the, uh, the the way that these blockchains are going to be incorporated into the real world. So in addition to his very tech savvy conversations with with the, with Fabric, his his project, we also kind of get into some high level conversations about uh, what these blockchain systems
1: will actually mean. Again this was a super fun interview. Uh, we don't always get Bitcoin core devs and uh, you know the developer types onto POV crypto but it's always fun when they do especially when we dig into um, you know what's the not technical aspect of how they view this space you know what's the philosophical aspect um, and what is the kind of political moral what what have you uh, so we got into all of that uh, with Eric um, and without further ado let's just get right into the interview Eric Merndale. You guys, I'm super excited to bring you Eric Mertendale. For those of you who don't know him, Eric has been in the space forever and has been at a lot of the prominent companies in the Bitcoin space. Uh, I think first starting off with BitPay in the early days, in early evangelists, and then from there uh, going on to Blockstream. And now you are starting up a project of your own called Fabric, which we're going to dive into on this podcast. Eric, welcome to POV Crypto. How's it going, man?
2: Pretty awesome. Thanks for having me on the show. I uh, just got settled back in San Francisco after a little bit of
1: traveling, so back to work. Yeah, you got a nice little travel beard going on. Where are you Where yeah. you been?
2: All over. Uh, I was actually just visiting my parents in North Carolina, um, so I, I was leaving San Francisco, uh, but basically been here for the past five years. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, all over um, North Carolina in particular, most recently.
1: So, cool. Yeah. So you have a deep and rich history in Bitcoin. Why don't you give us kind of like the the high level overview of, you know, kind of your history and uh, where you are today?
2: Oh, man, uh, it's kind of a crazy story. Uh, I've, I've been involved in virtual worlds and uh, virtual assets for a while, uh, you know, doing the whole startup entrepreneurial thing. Um, and so I, I kind of came across the Bitcoin white paper and uh, didn't. They thought it was just another virtual world, virtual asset kind of thing. Um, this is, you know, in the height of the financial crisis, and um, you know, I I I didn't really have as much as much of a firm grasp on economics as I think I think I seem to have, I feel like I have now. Um, but it really took sort of like going through the process of learning about you know, uh, you know, the Ron Paul revolution and Austrian economics, Keynesian economics, and then I, I started. I, it came back across my desk, and I was like, "Man, Bitcoin was it!" Uh, and I so I became the crazy uncle, you know. Uh, I, I I was like, "Man, Bitcoin's going to save every save everything. It's going to make everything better. It's going to you know tear apart the the whole uh, fiat system, and you know it's going to you know increasingly make the state irrelevant." And um, you know, I I my parents almost kicked me out of Thanksgiving dinner one year because I, I just kept cool. rambling on about how amazing Bitcoin was. <laughs> Uh, I was telling my local businesses, yeah, like seriously, um, but I got, you know, it, it, I was telling local businesses uh, that they should accept Bitcoin, this this new currency, and nobody had any idea what I was talking about, so I was just, you know, doing the whole evangelism thing, and um, that was 2011 through 2013, uh, so that was a pretty wild ride, uh, seeing something go from, you know, You know, a dollar or two per per Bitcoin, uh, up to you know seventeen dollars, twenty five dollars. It was a wild ride back then. Um, But uh, you know, I I I just kept believing in it and keep kept saying like people should adopt it. And uh, BitPay reached out to me actually. Uh, Somehow they had come across my name, my efforts, or something. I'd worked on some open source code which helped people bypass the limits on exchanges. Uh, I think that code is still floating around out there somewhere, uh, it's a Coinbase trader and Coinbase had limits on how much you could buy like per day, um, so I wrote some code to kind of bypass that and uh, I think that's probably originally what drew their attention, seeing some open source work in the Bitcoin space because, you know, Bitcoin is a new technology and there wasn't very much, very, the integrations into existing software were very low at the time. Um, so BitPay actually, you know, opened up a position for the opportunity to work on open source software, uh, and so I spent almost two years there. Um, BitPay, of course, being you know kind of a divisive company, I guess today maybe, uh, but uh, you know, they they were focused on uh, payment processing and helping businesses and merchants accept Bitcoin. Uh, were you
1: there when Pierre was there?
2: Pierre, yeah, of course. Pierre, Pierre and I would go next door uh, and uh, grab a beer every now and again. So uh, yeah, uh, definitely. There, there was a, it was an amazing team of uh, incredible people. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I only had recently crossed paths with uh, Stephen Pear at the, the Bitcoin conference, but um, I'm not sure you know who all is remaining. But I, I, I know uh, one of the guys that I hired is still there. Uh, he's doing well. So.
1: Awesome. Yeah, uh, but yeah, you, you're saying I didn't mean to interrupt the story about being no, in the open source no. space uh, with BitPay.
2: Yeah, so I mean, we had the, the, the opportunity to really uh, build out and, and spend a good, invest a good chunk of change uh, on open source software because you know if we wanted you know Bitcoin to be widely adopted, uh, it needed to be easy to integrate easy for businesses to accept. Um, and you know you can't expect uh, you know a mom and pop shop right to, to ha- hire a, a cryptogra- cryptography uh, slash game theorist uh, engineer to to help them you know integrate with Bitcoin right. So this is the, the the problems that they were attempting to solve. And we got a chance to build things like BitCore, right. Uh, Bitcoin was a big Java, was a JavaScript library um, that helped people build things with Bitcoin. Um, but some of the things that I was most excited about uh, to work on while I was there uh, were things like ChainDB. Uh, so this is one of the first sidechain implementations. Um, you know, So Blockstream had released their first sidechain white paper, I think it was even in 2014, 2015 maybe. And uh, so we were working on an implementation of how to use, quote, blockchains uh, for uh, data storage and computation. Um, so, we worked on ChainDB. Uh, we also built the first uh, block explorer, open source block explorer, which a lot of the kind of gave way to a lot of the altcoin markets, right? Uh, because there were, you know, they would have to otherwise create all of their own toolings uh, if they didn't kind of copy what Bitcoin was doing at the time. Um, so that was always a a a, a fun process, uh, teaching people about the internals of. Of Bitcoin, uh, because you know you'd walk into these enterprise companies, and you know their are customer they're they're hearing about this Bitcoin thing. It's like something that uh, you know maybe they could you know increase their stock price if it's a large company. Um, other other people are not really thinking about um, you know the the, the economics of, of having a money right, having a sound money. Uh, that's not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about you know how do I get my customers' money as quickly and easily as possible. Um, so that was one of the hurdles that we ran into there. Um, we we sort of dialed back from the open source investment, unfortunately, uh, and so that in two thousand fifteen is kind of what led led my way to Fabric ultimately. Uh, I started on Fabric in the summer of two thousand and fifteen um, as sort of an, an an idea on how how do we solve you know this uh, computation problem, uh, the fact that you know Bitcoin is is a perfect immutable database uh, that. Presumably, will be around for ten thousand years to come, right? Provided that everything, it provided that the economics kind of kind of work out. uh, This is probably the most you know likely uh, piece record of account uh, to remain for for long durations of time. Um, So, I mean, how do we build? We don't want to stuff everything inside of that, right? Because it sounds like if it's so valuable uh, to have such an immutable record of account, you know, it's going to be expensive right? Uh, at least as long as the block space, block size uh, is uh, constrained, right? So uh, if there's limited supply and a what effectively can be measured as an infinite demand, then you, you kind of get this uh, really incredible system.
1: Go ahead. No, I, was, I was trying to point to David as in, I hope he's listening, but uh, <laughs> I've heard this before. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, I'm kind of curious, Eric, you you discovered Bitcoin in 2011. And in 2015, you were, you know, you kind of, it seems like you had this idea of Bitcoin as potentially being extremely expensive and extremely, like, scarce. Like, did you, did like the store of value narrative and meme and understanding of Bitcoin, was that something that you experienced immediately? Like, what was your transition from like, you know, giving away paper, uh, paper wallets on the street to um, sound money, hard, you know, sound money?
2: Yeah. uh, So, I mean, it was really just the breakdown into what money is. So uh, my my foray into Austrian economics uh, led me to kind of understand the difference between currency and money. Right. Um, You know, a lot of things can be a currency, but certain properties uh, that a currency has, um, you know, a, a money has more properties than a currency. So a currency can be a good money, um, but a money may have other other utilities. Um, going to, from the perspective of having a centralized system of control, uh, so one where, you know, under the Keynesian model, you, you know, you have these dials and that we, we can tune. Uh, I, and then to, to one where, you know, it's the, the economics of it are set at the outset. Um, I think realizing just, Technically, coming from an from an engineering standpoint, realizing that how important those economic incentives were in securing the system that it wasn't simply a technical solution, but it was a socio technical solution. Um, you know, migrating over to the Austrian side, you know, realizing that hey, you know, there's no such thing as a val- as value, right? Only in the moment of trade, trade value is totally subjective something that you can't store, there is no store of value, right, it, it, you're, you're basically speculating on the potential value uh, of something in a future trade, uh, is, is what a money or a currency uh, can be perceived to be. Uh, so, so once you like, get, get to, to a deeper understanding of, you know, like, hey, like, what is value, right, value is what I perceive to be my profit in a trade. In the Austrian model, uh, every trade, both parties profit. So there's new wealth created uh, in every trade, right? So uh, that was just in very strict juxtaposition to, you know, what I was seeing as, you know, the inflationary model, uh, which, you know, I've, you know, I don't want to get too political too quickly, but uh, looking at how uh, future uh, labor or future wealth uh, is, 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 is basically borrowed upon, um, and thinking about how, uh, especially since in the United States the Sixteenth Amendment, uh, which granted Congress the power to levy an apportioned tax, uh, thus creating, uh, I mean, wage wage labor. Uh, I mean, depending on what your tax rate is, working three out of every ten hours that you work, or four out of every ten hours that you work, uh, to pay off uh, a interest rate because of uh, the inflation that was baked into the system by a set of central designers that you have no influence over. Um, And really, that's what got me fired up and uh, has me continuing to be excited today about Bitcoin uh, is really just the idea of separating money and state um, and having an opt-out option. Um, And that's kind of how I went down that path.
1: So, it's always been it's always kind of been the separate money from state angle more than anything else uh,
2: for me personally, yeah, um, because you know the the, the the whole Ron Paul thing, that's how I kind of came into this is Ron Paul's uh, opening my eyes to the Austrian school of thought. Um, and so when I realized that I, I guess you know two years after I originally read the paper, um when I realized just, um, the potential, the the more widespread potential for Bitcoin beyond just being a you know a digital currency or being a digital asset, the fact that it could actually incentivize massive social change, um, I became very very excited excited about it. So,
1: so I, I would love to dive into the massive social change that you kind of envision Bitcoin enabling. Uh, we were just you you were just about to talk about Fabric. Uh, do you want to put Fabric on the back burner and just jump into? social change, or how how should we go about this?
2: I'll keep the Fabric stuff short. I mean, a lot of our stuff's already open source, um, but uh, just advancing forward, I I worked for two more years at Blockstream. Um, I I took the summer of 2015 to kind of work on Fabric, Uh, think about the ideas of how, you know, what it would look like to have uh, safe and secure uh, distributed compute, uh, arbitrary distributed compute, uh, so this is like just running arbitrary programs, um, and uh, that's what led me to the original design. Um, I didn't feel like I had uh, as deep of a understanding of the underlying cryptographic elements that I wanted to, um, so that uh, I didn't feel like I had the toolings that I needed. Um, so I went and took a took a role at Blockstream for two years, did a very similar position to what I did at BitPay, which is open source outreach and uh, infrastructure and tooling for enterprise and so on um, but uh, ultimately at the end of to- or I guess it was middle of 2017 um, I said you know what I think I think we have the right tools that we need um, it was something a little bit different from liquid at the time um, so it what and it wasn't uh, we were kind of heading in a different direction um, so we, we decided to spin out and uh, I committed my full time to Fabric. Um, and that's sort of how I'm affecting that social change uh, is the way that I look at it.
0: So. so what's an example of something that you would use with Fabric? Because uh, when you say uh, you know, distributed computation, it kind of starts to sound like Ethereum. Um, but is it, is it like Ethereum in the way that, that Ethereum is like a world financial computer or is it something else?
2: I, I mean, getting into analogies, you know, nothing is fully accurate, but uh, this is general purpose computation. So this is like a, a, vir- a virtual machine that one could use for uh, scientific compute application. You know, a lot of people jump to folding at home uh, as sort of like a, a, a humanitarian way of uh, contributing compute capacity. Um, well, you know, there's, you know, the the capacity of uh, the, all computers in the world is obviously bigger than that of, you know, some subset, right? So uh, just thinking about this from the economic perspective, you want to allow people to offer up their comp- computational capacity uh, and then earn fair recompense for that. Um, so this is, I mean, I, would, I wouldn't say that- Paid immut- for in Bitcoin? Yeah, in our case, paid for in Bitcoin, uh, because, you know, we're, we're, we're relying on the immutability of the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, so we don't want to create a, a separate, um, uh, a separate dynamic or a se- separate incentive to compete with assigning that particular type of computational capacity towards anything other than securing Bitcoin. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of conversation in drive chain land and you know uh, merge mining land about how to um, uh, make sure that comp- computational capacity towards mining at least uh, is is shared. Uh, but that you do also quickly get into incentives questions, um, and I, I do like Paul Stork's ideas on this. Let a prediction market kind of drive drive your uh, exchange rate. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you introduce a new token, you know you you now introduce a new pair uh, with with every other currency that I'll, that it, that you have to, that you want to interact with. So, um, and added complexity is a is a security threat, right? You know. Donald Newth likes to say, you know, that it's not about how many lines of code you've written; it's about how many lines of code you've spent, right? Because every added line of code to a project is added complexity, and thus security—a security, uh, a security uh, surface attack increase. So,
1: so in in terms of like how in I know that Fabric is is still you know in the the development stage, but in terms of the final product, like how do you see? developers and other people using it and could they achieve something that they're currently doing on ETH or some other smart contract platform uh, on fabric uh, using Bitcoin?
2: Yeah. um, So, so really what we're, the phase that we're at is, is in now building tooling. Uh, We feel that we have all of the foundational elements kind of there. So we can do distributed compute, right? We can pay a network of peers, um, to perform some subsections of a larger computation. Um, this is actually uh, the next phase that we're, we're doing now is the secure multi-party compute um, compilation. So uh, in order to run a program in the, these private environments, which is what we're doing, is, is building a private computer where the members who are computing the data uh, cannot actually see the unencrypted data. Um, The the only thing that they can see is the encrypted blob. So this is uh, in in the zero knowledge territory, right? So using the SMPC technique, we compile a program down to something that's uh, divisible, right? Uh, In our case, we're looking for a polynomial, Um, basically every node in a circuit, every node in this network is gonna execute some portion of this contract. They're gonna apply some function uh, using some shared data uh, to the inputs that they've received okay so what we're doing here is rather than allowing sort of uh, this network of peers to kind of peer into the data that they're using the only uh, th- only visibility that they have is to the size or the cost of the computation uh, and the available payment uh, for if they are, are, are able to correctly execute uh, that that contract um, so what we're building is a fair uh, a, a fair information market. Um, where information is basically bought and sold uh, as, per- as uh, uh, inputs into these contracts. Um, so basically, we're going to see a kind of a, a free flowing fluid market for uh, all sorts of different specialized computations.
0: It starts to get a little bit over my head, but can you kind of provide an example for uh, what's like the, the first real world example you would see being used here?
2: Um, well, so the first thing that we we're launching is a, a, a zero knowledge exchange. Um, so this is a what we call a layer three contract. Uh, so the computations uh, are, are basically potential channels between peers at layer two. Uh, so we can kind of incentivize the correct paths in the contract to execute. Um, but basically, all the peers uh, who are participating in the exchange contract uh, are able to supply Bitcoin inputs, and they're able to supply Ethereum transactions. Uh, and inside of our zero knowledge contract, we do a uh, couple of steps, but we sort, we end up sorting all of the orders and we generate a zero knowledge order book. Uh, and then we uh, enable those uh, parties to trade uh, for uh, predetermined uh, prices uh, for between two different currencies. Um, and then ultimately, on the opposite side, uh, the transactions are settled out using a combination of. Um, SigHash single uh, and SigHash anyone can pay, um, which are then settled back down to the uh, Bitcoin main chain uh, optionally, uh, but they can also obviously be used uh, as uh, payments into another trade in the future.
0: So, how do you know that this product is going to be in demand? What what are your hints on that?
2: Well, uh, if you look at the larger exchange markets uh, for, you know, equities, or equities and bonds around the world, um, you know, there is a, especially after the financial uh, crisis and what, what, what ended up happening with these trades, um, you know, the, the, this, this market called the dark pool market uh, emerged. Uh, and I think in the Western world, uh, something like 60 to 70 percent of volume actually trades through these dark pools. Um, But dark pools uh, very specifically are very highly regulated, right? And one of the reasons that they, you know, have the uh, security that they do is because of the tight constraints and restrictions around the broken parts of the system, which necessarily exist, given the technology that they're using. Um, Whereas what, you know, what a a fabric-based solution would provide is more of a mathematical guarantee of that safety, Uh, so we get to... You know really reduce overhead in a very significant way.
1: Eric, talking about this exchange, in your example, you talked about it sounded like it was trading lightning Bitcoin for ethereum um, does Does uh, fabric require uh, lightning uh, like kind of under it, or um, how, how are you getting ethereum? How are you getting other altcoins or tokens into fabric?
2: Yep, yep. So uh, basically what we're doing is we're creating a new contract on Ethereum every time that there's a trade. Um, this is not something that's ideal, uh, but it's just unfortunately the way Ethereum allows us to do it. Um, we, do not, we don't use Lightning directly uh, right now. We can obviously take a Bitcoin transaction out of a Lightning node uh, and pass it into uh, our Layer 2 network. But we do have a layer two payment channel based network uh, that underlies this entire architecture. Um, part of the design is that the selective remove selective rev- uh, revelation or the selective disclosure uh, of the secrets in our HTLCs uh, enables you to build large trees and uh, circuit pathways by passing messages between subsets of tiers. Right. So this is this is. Fabric kind of sits on top of that as an orchestrator, right, uh, basically passing messages back down to the layer two, broadcasting them to the subsets of the peers, uh, and then the, the, the zero-knowledge computations take place at layer three um, as basically multi- multiplications between the, uh, each hop in the circuit. Um, so each, each hop requires a, a, a number of gates or a function be applied. So...
0: So we, we started to talk about the intersection of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum in, in this last little bit here. And I kind of want to circle back to something that we said uh, a while ago, whereas Bitcoin is the separation of money and state, uh, which again, totally agree with. Um, I would I like to put forth uh, the thought that, that uh, Ethereum is the recreation of the state, but as code. And so we are trying to iterate on what the state is and more is in like the state as in like a very collective group of things, right? So like with the state is your community, like the people in your country, the people that you transact with, the people in your economy, uh, and also the economy's money, and then the economy's um, system of securing the, the economy, which is like in, in the US, it's the IRS and also uh, the government deciding on where it allocates that funds. And so in Ethereum, we have this uh, issuance schedule, which is set by an algorithm. Uh, And then we have the transaction fees, which is like the IRS. And then we have this store of value asset, which is ether. Uh, And so I kind of see, and I've always kind of thought that Ethereum and Bitcoin have this um, uh, yin and yang to them, where Bitcoin is just like, nope, it's just money. Uh, And Ethereum is like, well, we want to do things. We want to build an economy. We want to have an ecosystem. Uh, and so as you are, as you have fabric as this uh, thing that seems to be going, has a one foot in each camp, like, how do you see that analogy? Does that seem relatively accurate to you?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think a lot of what draws people to Ethereum at large is the opportunity for uh, influence over the monetary policy. Um, and I think that that is, I, I, I oh, maybe there. I'm drawing, yeah. Maybe I'm drawing some assumptions, but I, but, I, but I think that a lot, I mean, at least when I go back and look at uh, a lot of the early uh, designs for systems or alternatives to Bitcoin, uh, the very first thing that they go after uh, is either proof of stake or proof of work, right? Uh, because they don't like how the consensus mechanism works. Um, and then they, and, and it seems like uh, very similarly, they will also be driven towards proof of stake. Um, now, proof of stake, I'll talk about this really briefly um proof of stake to me uh just reflects the existing capital holdings of of a of a of a user base um and therefore it it simply reinforces the same types of um uh, energies that uh, a lot of them so seemingly wish to push back against um so i i i think it's kind of um I think proof of stake works great. Uh, at a layer two as a layer two idea, right? If you're bonding something that has a completely separate uh, utility uh, into a contract, right? Then that, then that, that, uh, that asset, whatever it is, has outside utility, um, and therefore it's 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 useful for more things than just a zero sum game. Uh, which I do not perceive the world to be a zero sum game. So um, you know, I I, I like to kind of draw, draw the division there. I think it's pretty easy to debunk a lot of arguments uh, when they rely on the world being a zero-sum game, and I just don't find that to be the case. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it's. I, I, I think competitive, I, I describe myself less of a Bitcoin maximalist and certainly more of a monetary maximalist. Um, I think that markets tend to converge on a, a singular useful money. Uh, and I think money is the best form uh, of currency, really, uh, to be used uh, in a you know widespread, universal, free market. Um, and that's kind of what I'm gunning for here: is building a, a widespread, free, open to access uh, digital market that uh, people can buy and sell whatever they whatever they want uh, within this network. So,
0: especially that last part, I would say that every single person in Ethereum also wants
2: yeah that's fair like i i I've never been a big fan of you know calling calling shots at people mm-hmm. um I, I think remember just like the government uh even the government is made up of people uh and those people can change their minds eventually
0: mm-hmm. so <laughs> um, so one thing you said a, a second ago was um that uh proof of stake kind of mimics the current way that capital collects uh and so and so therefore that uh alluding to that that Bitcoin is the better model but I think what the better more the more accurate word was that Bitcoin is what you're saying is a moral argument right like morally Bitcoin works better but when we talk about functionally if it if Ethereum, if proof of stake reflects the current way that capital works in the world wouldn't it make sense if we're trying to and again we're trying to recreate the whole system we're just trying to do it with code instead of humans uh, wouldn't you say that perhaps cap uh, like proof of stake which I map onto the bond market. So like Bitcoin mining is like gold mining, right? And then proof of stake is like the bond market. And the bond market is big. Bond market is real big. It supports the whole world. And so it kind of goes back to this whole, let's, rec- let's take the model of from what we know works, but let's cut out all this bad stuff. Let's cut out the human control. Let's cut out the subjectivity. Let's co- cut out the governance and the politics, and let's just re- let code run the system.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, that underscores that underscore, that's underlies the same, same goals and objectives that I have. Um, but what I've worked out is that, you know, what, what is the, what are you, at the end of the day, what is it that you're going to be paying for? Uh, who, who's running the computations? Uh, where do they reside? Uh, and do, does it make sense, uh, from my engineering perspective, does it make sense uh, to have every node in the network execute every computation? And no, I don't think that's the case. And E 2.0 is moving in the correct. That's a sharding yeah, story. Right. Yeah. I, I, so sharding does still require uh, aggregation. Otherwise, you get uh, double spends across nodes. So that necessarily creates a super node situation where you know nodes kind of end up aggregating most of the capital. Um, you know, I mean that's it, it's really functionally no different from a, a, a federation, right? a federation is a small set of people, it's just that that trust relationship has been made very clear, right? And I think that's where, you know, Johnny and, you know, the rest of the Blockstream crew were, we were getting at with the strong federations paper is that, you know, if, the, if these are your security assumptions, that there is already a trust relationship between these parties, um, then you formalize that trust relationship in a cryptographic agreement and that there's your smart contract, right? There's no... There's, so what, what I think we'll see is a blossoming uh, of many, many Layer 2 systems. Uh, they'd either fundamentally build a bridge between uh, Ethereum and its many forks at this point, or Bitcoin and its many forks at this point, right? So it, it, that's kind of what this whole thing is about, uh, is, you know, giving people the opportunity to express their voice. Um, and, you know yeah obviously, even within Ethereum, within Bitcoin, you know there are divisions and there are camps. Um, and you know certainly among the wider market. But hey, look, currency competition is good. We're breaking the monopoly on money is what we're doing here, and this is what it looks like. so i I, I remain super excited and positive for, for where we are and where we're headed. So
1: I tend to agree with you. I know that a lot of bitcoiners kind of have disdain for alts and others. Um, but I see that personally, like, and don't don't kill me, guys. I see all of them as part of Bitcoin. Like, Bitcoin is this mesh, mission of creating currency competition and separating money from state, uh, and all of these things are part of that process. And yes, there's a lot of confusion. Yes, there's a lot of shitty investments. Yes, there's a lot of suckers that are going to get fucked, and a lot of naive people that are going to get fucked. But at the same time. Like, this is what it looks like. I don't see it's inevitable. This is the only way that it can happen. Um, And this is what currency competition looks like. And, you know, on the flip side, being a monetary maximalist from an investment perspective, I just see one very, very strong investment.
2: Absolutely. Uh, I I, I tend to go in that direction. Um, You know, this is not financial advice, uh, and I can't tell people that uh, I don't put more but, you know, I try to say, look, man, just think about it as a hedge against global financial collapse. You put, you know, half a percent of your portfolio into it. You know, you're you're, you're going to be good. Now, if you really want to buy into the vision, you know, put five, put twenty percent in. But I can't te- I can't tell you that I don't take a hundred percent of my income in Bitcoin, right? Because you know that's just kind of where where I see things going. I, I find it difficult. I, I, I see a lot of um, you know incremental improvements uh, in a lot of different areas. Um, but obviously, this has kind of been repeated ad nauseum, but you know, until we get to the, you know, the 10x, uh, until it's a real significant radical improvement to what Bitcoin is currently offering, uh, which includes uh, a wide swath of what many uh, products that have recently entered into the market, uh, wide, what a wide swath of them proclaim to offer, uh, let alone what they actually offer. Uh, and I think that is, you know, that's something that deserves to be called out. Uh, and people should, you know, point out when pe- when false statements are made. I think that that is, you know, that, that the best thing that we can do is to go around and educate people. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's a journey for each of us individually, you know, into, in terms of educating ourselves. Um, but getting out there and, you know, just teaching people about how the system that they're currently using is working. You know how many people know how the dollar works? Not, not really. If you if you ask around, some there's a lot of people out there who still think the dollar is backed by gold. So uh, it's, uh, you know, it's you know, I, I tell people it takes time, and you know go read The Creature from Jekyll Island as a starting place. It's like how deep down the rabbit hole do you really want to go? Um, but uh, I think for up, up to the people that are in the space, you know, rather than fighting with each other, we kind of have a common enemy. We could do a lot better to, to educate people outside of our our small inner circles in a lot of cases uh, and get out there and, and you know continue continue on that mission you know because maybe if I'm not handing out you know uh, a paper wallets or you know demanding people install a, an app on their phone, you know who, who was I at that point point, uh, and then sending them you know four dollars worth of Bitcoin. You know, it's it, it's just a, an awareness and an education of self-sovereignty and self-empowerment. Um, and I think that that could help uh, a, a lot of the political landscape today if more people realize that. Um, and I think that uh, ultimately it's a part part of what we're doing with Bitcoin, right?
0: All right, guys, there is a new lending platform on the scene uh, providing surprisingly good lending rates for specifically stable coins, but also all other cryptos as well. Celsius Network, it's an app on iOS and Android. If you put your crypto in it, you get a return. Uh, we've been talking about DeFi a lot on this podcast. And so maybe you're asking like, well, why would I do that? And that's because at least the die lending rate on Celsius right now is 3% higher than on compound. Uh, and so their, their, their rates are pretty competitive. Uh, so download the app Celsius network on Android and iOS and see if those interest rates uh, pique your interest.
1: Yeah, guys uh, really excited to bring on this new sponsor and in particular Uh, This sponsor is trying to do their best to be better than just a regular uh, centralized financial institution. They're all about profit sharing, uh, the interest rates back to the users, and they're just trying to keep users in mind. They are a revolutionary and innovative uh, take on banking, so check them out. Check out Celsius Network, and when you do, use promo code POV and get... $10 Ten dollars of BTC when you deposit 200 bucks into their uh, savings accounts. Um, again, they have a bunch of different options, and they really stack up well against their competitors for pretty much all stablecoins. Pretty close to 10 um, 10% annual um, return on investment, and uh, you know, pretty pretty comparable uh, lending rates as well. So they do lending as well as interest accounts. Uh, So uh, check out Celsius Network, guys, and POV as the promo code.
0: Yeah, and uh, one thing I've always wondered is, is, you know, at the start of every single podcast, everyone's like, okay, I dismissed Bitcoin, I dismissed crypto, thought it was a scam, and then I came back to it, and then I went down the rabbit hole. And now I've become an expert on game theory, an expert on like financial history, an expert on ec- economics. I've become an expert on like seven different things. And <laughs> at the same time, no one is here to give us a degree and how smart we are about this stuff. Uh, we, ha- we did an episode not too long ago about like what, what I called open source uh, education, because like you can go to college and you can do your four years and then you can get a degree saying, okay, you are this smart in this subject. Uh, and there's issues about the whole system of college. But with crypto, there's no thing like that. And what's cool about the crypto community is that everyone is here of their own volition. And every time we have a, an intelligent debate about these subject matters, everyone knows that each one of us had to self-teach us these things like we all had to like yeah. do the blood sweat and tears to figure out what the hell this whole system is and so like you know we, we have these ethereum versus bitcoin debates but at the same time we are all on this process of learning literally just basically how the world works like bitcoin and, and crypto economic systems is a huge conversation as to like what is the true nature of the world at large and how does our economic system map onto it
2: yeah i couldn't agree more and and how do we make sure that we we can have the tools that we need to shape the world around us into the things that are better serving for us mm-hmm. right as as individuals because there are so many different individuals in the world that you know they they may not even be aware uh of and if you're not aware how can you ever choose so right.
0: the reason why i was going to say that is because like i really want to go to my mom and my mom and my sister they bought a house together uh, and my sister is super skeptical of basically everything I do. She's like the opposite of me. She works for the government, uh, you know, does, does the whole lobbying for healthcare thing, you know, does the whole so- social justice thing. So I can't knock her. But like when I go and say, like, oh yeah, there's this really cool thing that's happening and it's this in this crypto world, you know, she's immediately just like rolls her eyes and like, yeah, that's just a bunch of like fucking noise, like whatever. And I can't go to her and be like, yo, Kate. I'm really smart about certain subjects. Like I know a lot and I, everyone else is crazy. And if you go and talk to your financial advisor about like what your 401k should be, they're idiots and they have no idea what they're talking about. And she's like, no, David, you're an idiot. You're a psych major. Like, And I'm like, well, there's not really nothing I can say to that because I don't have a degree in crypto. There's no such thing.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are some people starting to put a little bit of time into trying to certify things, but you know, <laughs> I, I I say to hell with the whole idea that I I think you know you got to think on your feet. Um, you know I think it was Alvin Toffler is who this quote is attributed to, but it's uh you know the illiterates of the 21st century will not be be those who cannot read and write. Uh, it'll be those who can who, who cannot uh, learn,
0: unlearn, and relearn. Right. Right. Um, that's something that so, if I told her that she would be like, no. nah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we did just go through a huge um, pretty I would say a pretty significant generational shift uh, with mm-hmm. uh, you know digital natives and digital immigrants. Uh, a lot of kids these days are not really uh, born uh, without globally connected, you know instantaneous always on access to the wealth of human knowledge. Um, so there's a lot of people out there that kind of sit on that cusp that uh, maybe remember what it was like uh, when they had to go down to the library uh, to seek out knowledge and information. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just think it's, it, it's part of you know, just a, a shift in conversation. Now that we have the ability to communicate globally instantaneously, um, you know we can find other people with similar ideas. We can find other people with competing ideas. And this is exactly the, the point, right? Um, so I, I, yeah, like I said, I couldn't be more excited about the state of the world, quite frankly.
1: Yeah, I actually have a pretty positive view of the world myself, uh, especially post-Bitcoin. I know that a lot of ETH heads will, uh, will roll their eyes at that. And, uh, hey, we, we just
0: say the same thing, but we say post-Ethereum.
1: <laughs> Whatever, but yeah, <laughs> uh, it definitely has, has made, uh, made me have a lot more positive outlook. I actually want to bring this back to Bitcoin versus ETH. Um, I would say that you're being a lot nicer to Ethereum people on this podcast than past podcasts I've heard you speak about. Um, the subject. And I would like to get into like, why do you think from a monetary maximalist perspective that Bitcoin is so superior? Um, I have a hunch that proof of work is part of it, but uh, I'd like to get your, just your take there. And maybe if you could even juxtaposition it towards, you know, why, where ETH fails uh, at being a money.
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, well, the biggest thing for me ultimately boils down to inflation Um I I think that's an obviously it's an economic policy decision. Um, if you're going to create an asset and introduce it to the world um, and people buy into that asset, uh, then they're going to want that commitment, that contract to be upheld. Um, so you know we, we we actually you know an important vocabulary shift, right? You know we want to talk about you know the block reward is the block subsidy, right? It's the block subsidy. We're subsidizing miners to kickstart a business. Uh, which hopefully will be around for you know at least 140 years or whatever whatever the, the total length of Bitcoin and was or ends up being right. So Bitcoin is Bitcoin's final issuance is the year 2140, right? So when I kind of looked at Bitcoin's monetary policy, it obviously looked like it had been thought out for a very long uh, period of time, a period of time for a very, hunkering down for a very. Uh, and battling a very tough fight without a doubt. I mean, separating money and state was gonna be a huge challenge. Um, and so, the, the more I dug into, you know, maybe making Bitcoin better, right, um, It I, I realized that there were other pressures and other dynamics at play more so than just simply the mining, more so than simply just the, the merchants accepting it, more so than, you know, it becoming a money at all, right? Uh, integrations were a huge are a huge issue. Like the fact that merchants still don't have an easy way to accept it and so on. Um but I saw that the dynamics there, especially the with the more conservative angle, quite frankly, the 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 idea that, you know, this is a very serious issue. It's not a startup. You know, this is um you know we're we're having a conversation of historical of historical no, no precedent in history for the type of scale of the conversation that we're talking about now because never before have we had you know, globally connected opportunities to talk to our, to our neighbors around the world. Um, but it, what, I, what I saw as, that cha- as the challenges that, it, that any such system would face uh, were the fact that they would be facing pushback from the existing uh, power holders, the existing states, uh, the parties that stand to lose power Um, when such a system emerges, which I I would say it almost inevitably has to, uh, if any justice is to be served for the people, right? Um, So it's, I I would say that it is just Bitcoin's personality. Uh, If Bitcoin had a personality, uh, it is, you know, uh, to be the, you know, the honey badger, the unstoppable force that, um, you know, even though people are going to be, you know, heavily debating and demanding something be changed. Uh, Bitcoin, I felt, um, you know, probably, I would say 2013, uh, when I joined BitPay, I would say probably had crossed the the threshold for me for almost being an inevitability. Um, And it was at that time I decided to take my whole paycheck in Bitcoin. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, compar- contrasting it to Ethereum, though, um, no, I think that the Ethereum made a lot of poor engineering decisions. Uh, I have no, I, I, you know, I obviously can't justify participating in a system which inflates uh, it to that, to, to that capacity, let alone um, how centralized the control structure around Ethereum and the Ethereum ecosystem uh, appears to be. Um, I think that it's uh, pretty ridiculous that everybody kind of still looks to King Vitalik um, for, for his wisdom and guidance. Um, so, I, you know, it's I, I didn't see the opportunity, you know, if I want to survive for 10,000 more years, uh, then, you know, I'm going to make sure I want my system to, to be very hardened and resilient against, you know, these types of uh, political attacks. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we're seeing this, you know, Facebook, Facebook's Libra is bumping into the same issue, right? You know, they, they have a very clear legal entity, so it makes it even easier for the state to, to crush, push back against that attempt. Um, but, you know, Bitcoin is the only one that still doesn't have a very clear uh, leader, and uh, I, I think that's by design almost, if not uh, explicit. So uh, I, it, it, it continues to basically beat all my metrics in terms of my expectations. So, um, yeah, and I, I, you know, it's hard for any system to come up with a, um, you know, alternative structure after the fact, because necessarily, uh, I mean, unless there's a comp- somehow a completely anonymous launch, uh, you know, the founders are going to be known. And, you know, if they're not known, then their op- OPSEC is going to come under challenge for the rest of their lives. Um, so it's it, it's like we don't really get the opportunity to have the, the black swan launch that Bitcoin did. Um, to, to Taleb's point, but, uh, you know, it's, um no, I just, I ultimately just think it's going to be the, it, it is a immutable database and it is demonstrated that it is immutable, uh, uh, certainly more uh, reliably than every other chain. And so that's why I'm, I'm pretty heavily considered to be a Bitcoin maximalist.
0: Okay, to, to push back on, on some of those points, uh, uh, this is, I always frequently see Bitcoiners using the Bitcoin frame of reference to evaluate Ethereum uh, because you know, uh, they, they want to put Ethereum in Bitcoin shoes and be like, okay, these are all the ways that afe- Ethereum has failed. But that's just the wrong way to look at it. We have a different system of evaluating Ethereum success. And, and the way Ethereum succeeds doesn't necessarily need uh, this immaculate conception story. The immaculate conception equivalent for Ethereum is, a, is an explosion of developer activity. Which uh, brings me to my second point, which is the whole dilution of Vitalik's control. Like Vitalik is pretty hands off at this point. Like he's doing pretty like high level game theoretical like analysis on how to do uh, swaps between side chains, which is what we want in the in the future version of Ethereum where there's a thousand twenty four shards and then a bajillion you know plasma side chains. How do we communicate value between those shards? Like it's a very niche subject. So Vitalik has become pretty hands-off and his power has been pretty effectively dil- diluted uh, away from just like the King Nicole, King Vitalik thing. Uh, he was this, uh, you know, the guy that created Ethereum and he's uh, this public figure, but he's also like this cute, cuddly, autistic kid. Like he's not trying to overthrow the whole uh, financial system of the world in the same way that Bitcoin is like Bitcoin wins by killing other fiat currencies. Ethereum doesn't necessarily win that way, and that's why it's just not that much of a of a contentious issue. When we have this alternative internet financial system, I totally believe Ethereum is going to overthrow existing financial systems. But the whole leaders of nation states aren't going to realize that until well beyond it is too late just like how the Bitcoin thing has happened. Like it's too late to stop Bitcoin. I totally believe that Bitcoin has reached escape velocity and it's too late to to stop it. By the time that nation state economies realize that Ethereum is doing the same exact thing that they're doing, it's also going to be too late.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Um, I mean, I think the, the biggest co- question is whether or not, you know, Bitcoin systems will come online fast enough to kind of absorb that activity or at least connect into the, the, the upswing, right? Um, no, I, I definitely think that the whole uh, connectivity with the existing financial system is crucial. Um, I just don't think that it's a permanent thing. Uh, when I look at Bitcoin, I think 10,000 years. When I look at Ethereum, I think 20 years right like these are the time scales that i'm that i'm looking at and i i have i have no nothing against you know the the vast majority of of developers working on the project right it's like you know i i i think that it's a noble goal to to contribute code in any capacity to anything um but especially if it's uh, something that you know has this widespread potential impact um but you know i you know, just I think it's, again, just the, the contrast between the, the go fast and break things kind of approach um, and, uh, you know, just taking it slow and being extremely conservative, because after all, you know, this code that we're writing is dealing with other people's money, right? So it, it's just like, you know, I I was super, super excited about Bitcoin happening so fast, um, but then realizing just how big of a challenge the education cycles are uh, for the wider audience. I mean, it, in order for, you know, some, look, you can't, can't bring up the word anarchy without sparking a very serious and heated debate in just about any city in America. Um, so if you look at it and you zoom out, you know, nations operate in anarchy already, right? You know, they just have the, they have the threat of violence that they can utilize against one another. Um, but, you know, people, aren't, people, people are looking for trust, right? The vast majority of people are, you know, rely on the dollar because they, they look for trust. Uh, and so I think a lot of that is getting absorbed by, you know, Ethereum and a lot of the other competing projects. Um, you know, I think money is ultimately kind of the anchor point for a, for a good system. Um, obviously, Bitcoin's time stamping and checkpointing and, and, you know, blockchain-based technologies in general are, are pretty good at that. Um, but I want, you know, I'm looking for something that's going to, you know, achieve what I call thermodynamic security, where even if some crazy AI strong AI does emergently um, show up uh, it can't outcompete the laws of physics uh, and so that's that's kind of where my line is is I'm looking for a 10,000 year lifetime um, where I'm happy to speculate into you know smaller systems as businesses right but I don't want to look at them for anything other than what they are uh, which in most cases is a is a business that in order for the entity itself to I mean even with even with Ethereum, right? Um, you know, there's so many engineers that have to get paid to write integrations uh, for all these applications. We need to, you know, build consumer-facing applications uh, for for trading, first of all, uh, and that's starting to happen more and more. We need to build consumer-facing applications for loans, for investments. You know, there's you know hundreds of companies kind of kind of doing this effort right now, but it's all a for-profit effort. Uh, and I just make want to make sure that people aren't missing that. Uh, and that they're not throwing money willy-nilly away without some secure, sort of security deposit, you know?
0: So I would say the Bitcoin blockchain is first and foremost secured by trust. Trust in the code of Bitcoin. And that's what gives its its thermodynamic walls of energy. Uh, because everyone trusts that the code is real and there's only going to be 21 million. That's where the value of Bitcoin comes from but what what a proof of stake system does is it just says okay because we have that trust we can just make the value of the thing be the wall be the thermodynamic wall and it's a different thermodynamic wall because a token what what a a unit of money is is a symbol it's like it's like a battery right like if i give you 20 dollars i could probably make you do some things with that like I can make you write some lines of code with me, like not too many because it's only $20. But I could also ask you to do like two, pit, two pushups and that might be worth it for you. Like there's energy in that money that I give you. And therefore you can also use that energy inside of a proof of stake system to represent a, a pseudo electric fence or a pseudo thermodynamic wall. And so I think it skips straight to the point, which is the trust. Do you trust the money? And if you do, then you can just use the money to secure the system.
2: Yeah, I I, I hear you. And there's always some degree of trust uh, in in these types of systems, right? You know, you're 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 trusting either your if you're not trusting your software because you wrote it yourself or you validated it yourself. Uh, then you're trusting the hardware because I I can tell you that most people don't validate their supply chains when they acquire their laptops or their cell phones or even their desktops these days. Um, so it's, uh, you know, there is a trust chain that already exists, and that whole thing has to be, if we really want to, you know, have a high degree of confidence on anything, you know, you've got to validate all that stuff, too. Um, but I think I, Andrew Polster's paper on this, uh, because everybody's sort of uh, using, you're using the same currency uh, that is supposed to be used to secure the system. Uh, or there's some argument that he constructs at the tail end of his paper uh, about how it's it doesn't seem possible if you're using that currency uh, for your staking right so uh, it seems like it, he said it creates perverse incentives now I, I i don't call myself an expert in game theory uh but you know I encourage you to read andrew Polster's paper on it um do you know what it's called yeah uh i, I think it's or how spells last. Andrew Polstrip, Proof of Stake, P-O-E-L-S-T-R-A. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, look, I, I, I think Proof of Stake makes sense uh, as if you're bonding something that has been a, uh, some sort of immutable record of account into it. Um, I think Proof of Stake, from a technical issue, introduces other trade-offs, um, such as, you know, not being able to surpass the one-third threshold uh, for Byzantine actors um, you know it, it it generally prefers you know uh, safety over liveness is another one uh, whereas Bitcoin will continue to operate just fine uh, even if even while it's under attack up to certain thresholds um, so it, it's not like it stops um, so yeah I mean but it but it always resolves it always resolves the the double spend so um, yeah I think like I said, it's it's monetary competition. um what other I, I, I oh one thing about bitcoin i don't I don't perceive it to really be uh, energy that i'm trans transferring over, right? Because when you're transferring bitcoin, you're not you're not you're not actually transferring the proof of work that was accumulated in the mining process, right? what what you're transferring uh, is the you know potential uh, expenditure in the same market uh, at as that system. We're etching a record into a record of account is what we're doing, right. So this energy, you know, is is, is accumulated over time. Uh, So really what we want to look, there might even be a price premium today. Uh, Last I checked, there was a price premium on newly minted Bitcoin. Um, But there might be a price premium today on uh, older UTXOs, for example. Um, You know, coins that are transaction outputs that destroy uh, older and older records um you know i don't know whether the price goes up or up or down there but you know we definitely saw that for you know for virgin bitcoin uh, especially out of a block so uh yeah i mean there's problems left to be solved in bitcoin like fungibility the fact that you can even distinguish between coins at all is a very serious issue um so uh, there's there's lots of different opportunities to improve but i just don't think that they they reside in the consensus mechanism
1: awesome I mean, this, uh, this conversation was a lot of fun there, uh, Eric, and it definitely went a lot of directions that I didn't exactly anticipate. So that that's always something that makes a fantastic podcast on my end. Um, I know we wanted to touch on proof of work a little bit. Uh, we're kind of getting to the end of time. Uh, do you want to do you have something in mind in particular that you wanted to talk about like the physics of proof of work or should we wrap it up
2: oh i i mean I, I i find myself repeating this all the time at just about the tail end of every time i try to explain bitcoin to somebody um but uh no it's uh look you know human there are ways to measure a civilization's um progress towards the stars um and one in particular is called the kardashev scale uh, It was originally proposed uh, it's basically to have three different phases. I'm sure you guys have talked about this on your show before, but uh, basically, Kardashev type one civilization uh, is capable of harnessing the energy of a, of a planet. Uh, Kardashev two uh, is capable of harnessing the entire energy output of a star. Uh, and then a Kardashev three civilization is capable of harnessing the energy of a galaxy. Um, and so you know i'm I'm super into you know, astronomy primarily. Uh, but through astronomy, a deeper understanding of quantum mechanics and quantum physics and so on. Um, you know you, you we always go down the rabbit hole at some point um, but yeah, just thinking about uh, bitcoin's proof of work as a economic incentive uh, for for basically everyone on this planet uh, to produce uh, energy uh, for for consumption uh, basically as the uh, sort of uh, end-all-be-all all game, and it it ended up aligning well with kind of my existing perspective of the world, so that's why I'm still a, a crazy Bitcoiner. Um, but just this opportunity for Bitcoin's proof of work, especially if it becomes a universal money, um, to, one, really drive the conversation in energy market. Uh, you start seeing nations worldwide or jurisdictions worldwide where they have energy subsidies um, Gas subsidies are are a great example. Um, they're going to they're going to be the ones to have the first problems, um, and this is why you see Bitcoin kind of taking off uh, in rural China. Uh, you know they have a lot of um, excess power there, uh, so power is going to be cheaper. So it's not a not a direct subsidy, but because the Chinese state invested so heavily in mining or er, in hydroelectric power up in the mountains, they've got all this excess ex- excess power that they've got to dump somewhere. So Bitcoin is actually kind of a very nice solution for the for those local companies, um, but I think ultimately as uh, we approach uh, the the physical limit, you know, Bitcoin mining, even ASIC mining, becomes pretty pretty commodified. Um, I mean, the fact that you, you know you can even participate in a pool today at all uh, is is an exciting metric, and I just I just continue to see that um, divide as we get that. Uh, More and more close to that commodification, but that's why I think it's such a long cycle, right? I think it's going to probably be 10, 15, 20 years that we go through this transition. Um, And so we're already seeing reports uh, of studies of actually where Bitcoin mining is being utilized. Uh, And it's coming mostly actually from renewable energy. So this is solar, this is wind, this is hydroelectric. I think the number I I, I last I checked was something like 78% of it. Um, so I think rather the than coin shares, yeah, that, that was the coin shares report.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, uh, you know, hopefully I always we,
1: say just imagine they're half wrong, and it's still amazing.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, hopefully we'll get more independent research out there. Um, but you know, there's a you know there's a gas power plant uh, in North Carolina that you know I I, I'm pretty, I work with the guys close to it, um, and you know there's zero, zero combustion gas power plant. And they were—they had, you know, something like 10 megawatts of excess energy that they needed to dump somewhere because, you know, it's mostly a demonstration, you know, power plant. They built the whole thing and they're going to connect it to the grid and all that, um, but uh, they're not going to run it 24/7. So they've got some excess power, blah 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 blah, and they wanted to dr- drop some Bitcoin miners down there. And I thought that was great. Um, but look, energy is is pretty much the beating heart of civilization, right? Uh, Everything, uh, it's the most abundant thing in the universe, at least what we can see of it, Uh, energy at at large is. Uh, All matter is composed of energy, right? So I'd like to think of it as the most fundamental currency in the universe. And and what better way to uh, leverage or incentivize, you know, a a population uh, other than to just simply directly tokenize what that energy represents? Um, And so I think that's ultimately what Bitcoin is. I think that Bitcoin um, has the potential to carry us to becoming a type one, Kardashev type one civilization, if not Kardashev type two, um, where, you know, energy policies between nation states, as their monetary control begins to slip, um, they're forced into positions where they have to make um, uh, basically uh, concessions. Uh, to the free market, uh, reducing regulations, uh, encouraging uh, basically small, small and local business owners to you know invest in you know solar panels, energy. I mean you, they're going to see the markets doing it already, uh, but just because the they're not going to be able to keep up with the demand, uh, the price of energy will probably go up, uh, resulting in uh, people looking to an alternative system, and that's kind of how I see it see it playing out. This is so, a
0: super interesting line of reasoning. If, if listeners want to learn more specifically about this subject, do you have anything where like, you can point them?
2: Uh, there's not very much writing, <laughs> I guess. I mean, honestly, I point, I point people to the Nakamoto Institute. Um, I, I should probably put, put together a, a longer form essay on my thinking here. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people share very similar ideas about Bitcoin's proof of work. You know, as more and more capital flows into Bitcoin or into crypto at large um you know the the demand for you know space uh, is gonna go up, the demand for computing capacity is gonna go up um, and so the more and more people value this the the higher the price goes, and the closer we get to hyper bitcoinization so um, I think this is um probably. Probably Nakamoto Institute will be the first thing I send people to just because of Daniel Krawitz's article and all of the other lovely work that those guys do. Um, originally coining the term hyper-Bitcoinization. Um, yeah, uh, Dan Held wrote up a pretty good uh, segment s- section on it. Dan Held has a medium essay, uh, a couple of medium essays, actually, uh, where he goes into this stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, you know once, once we remove the cruft, of the existing central banking system, uh, our economy will operate much more efficiently uh, and we will have much more wealth available for everybody. So
1: kind of how I think. Awesome. Well, I hope that it happens, man. And uh, I mean, my bag sure depend on it. Eric, where can people find you on the interwebs? Where can people <laughs> learn more about Fabric and uh, Portal and all the other things you're working on?
2: Yeah, um, so you can hit me up on Twitter at Martindale. He spelled uh, out. my last name. And uh, for Fabric, M A R T I N D A L E, Martindale. Um, and uh, for Fabric, you can check us out at Fabric Protocol. That's also on Twitter. Uh, on the World Wide Web, soon to be the Legacy Web, uh, that is fabric.pub, as in going down to the old pub. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it. And uh, I appreciate it again for having me on the show.
1: Awesome. Yeah, it was a great time having you, man. And let's grab a beer in SF. It's great to, to hear another fantastic Bitcoiner in this city. Even though Bitcoiners shit on SF so much, there's so many of the best ones living in SF. I don't get it.
2: Yeah, well, like I said, I you know after they classified me as a domestic terrorist, I, I had to start thinking about getting out of town. But uh, I'm here for another few more months. We'll see how this goes. So...
1: Oh, man, I don't want to hear that. I guess we're going to have to hear that story off the pod. But, uh, Eric, thanks again for coming on the show. You guys can all find the show at POV Crypto Pod. You can find me at CK underscore Snarks. David.
0: You can find me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Medium. And five star review the pod, please. And subscribe to our YouTube.
1: Yes, you can see Eric's epic beard on YouTube. All right, peace. Thanks, Eric.